Well, thank you all for coming. I am uh, Peter Russo. I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute. So I want to welcome you to our Hill briefing entitled Real ID, Fear, Federalism, and the U.S. National ID Program. Uh, today's event will conclude uh, informally a three-part series focusing on well-intended but ultimately useless domestic security measures. Back in September, we looked at E-Verify and the Transportation Security Administration. So if you're curious, uh, video of those presentations can be viewed at Cato.org. But today we move to yet another bad idea that found its way into federal law. It, like the others, shares the characteristic of satisfying the need to do something without materially enhancing security. Real ID, which passed in 2005, is for all intents and purposes the latest vehicle for implementing a national level identification system, an idea that's been scrapped time and time again. Briefly, the program attempts to create a national ID by requiring a one-size-fits-all set of federal standards to what exists now as state licenses to operate motor vehicles on public avenues and thoroughfares. The history is clear. Since their inception in 1936, efforts to make social security cards serve as a national ID have been dismissed countless times, as recently as the Carter administration. Any blending of pictures and social security numbers have also been roundly opposed. During the Reagan administration, the notion of a new federally administered national ID card was explicitly rejected. Under the Clinton administration, a variant required a national health security card. That too was put to bed. Even Speaker Newt Gingrich dismissed the concept, recognizing it had significant civil liberties issues, as have many other national leaders ever since. Simply put, when given the light of day, these kinds of measures never pass scrutiny. This was not true with Real ID. Real ID did not get a public hearing, and the implementation language was simply slipped into a supplemental appropriations bill, which then President Bush promptly signed. What happened next is the subject of our presentation today. So with me again is Cato Senior Fellow Jim Harper. Harper works to adapt law and policy to the information age in areas such as privacy, cybersecurity, telecommunications, intellectual property, counterterrorism, government transparency, and digital currency. A founding member of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Data, Privacy, and Integrity Advisory Committee, Harper co-edited the book Terrorizing Ourselves, How U.S. Counterterrorism Policy is Failing and How to Fix It. His work has been cited in numerous print, internet, and television media outlets, and he's written for America's leading news and public affairs publications, as well as many law journals. Harper earned his JD from the University of California, Hastings College of Law. And we will leave time at the end for questions, but for now, uh, Jim, take it away. Thanks. Thank you, Peter, and uh, Thanks to all of you for being here. You're slightly gluttons for punishment to, to come want to learn about this issue, but hopefully the sandwiches make up for the, uh, the loss of your time from having to hear me talk for the next little while. Um, uh, introducing the, uh, this talk, he said that, uh, that this concludes a series on well-intended but ultimately useless uh, programs. I'm not sure that Real ID was actually well-intended, um, but let's assume that it was. Uh, it, it is, I think, useless, and it's fair to say uh, that unfortunately uh, the 9-11 attacks caused U.S. public policy to launch a thousand security ships and many of them do not have a destination. Uh, they don't work. Uh, they don't provide cost-effective security uh, and they should be brought back to port. Uh, it's the time now with with 9-11 far enough in hindsight to analyze what programs actually provide security and do so in a cost-effective way so that they don't make us worse off by, for example, spending $3 billion to avoid $1 billion in societal losses. That's a net loss to the society. So not all security is beneficial. Security can cost more than it provides in benefits. 
I'll, I'll start with a little bit of history of, of Real ID. And a lot of folks, you know, would start the history with 911 and the 911 Commission. But the history goes a little further back. Uh, as early as 1939, the American Association of Motor Vehicle Administrators, which is the umbrella group for, um, for driver licensing bureaus across the country, was advocating for increased licensing, increased testing of drivers in order to build the revenue stream of, of, uh, of driver, for driver licensing bureaus. Uh, the organization has been there at every turn in society looking to increase the role of driver's licenses and government-issued IDs uh, in, in our society. In 1956, AMVA put out a document urging people to remember that, uh, that driving should be thought of as a privilege and not a right. It really wanted to fight against the notion that uh, Americans should, be, should have a right to drive in the United States. Rather, it's a government-granted privilege. Uh, that, that's what allows states to, to maintain driver licensing bureaus. Obviously, we don't want the streets to be a free-for-all, but, uh, but driver licensing is only one way of, of causing drivers to, to be secure vis-a-vis -vis one another. AMVA's been there all the way. The, the old saying, you know, if, uh, if what you have is a hammer, every, every problem is a nail. Well, AMVA uh, has a national ID, and every problem is, I've just failed with the metaphor. But you get what I'm saying. This, this, has been, uh, uh, this has been something that this organization and driver licensing bureaus have been working on for a long time. Um, but obviously the, mo the most recent iteration of the debate starts with the 9-11 attacks and counterterrorism. It's often cited, the Real ID Act, as a, uh, as a recommendation of the 911 Commission. In part, I suppose, but in large part not. The 911 Commission dedicated about three-quarters of a page out of three, three or four hundred pages of substantive material to the question of identification and licensing. And it recommended that, that the federal government should set standards for birth certificates and driver's licenses. The 911 Commission did not articulate how that would actually secure, how it would have prevented 911 had Real ID been in place uh, ahead of time or any other kind of national ID system. It didn't articulate certainly how it would cost, cost uh, effectively prevent terrorist attacks or provide any kind of security. And Real ID wasn't the law passed in response to the 911 Commission. In fact, prior to the passage of Real ID, the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act contained pr provisions that, that dealt with state driver licensing and identification policy. At the time the Real ID Act was passed, a negotiated rulemaking had begun. That is, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, Department of Transportation, state driver licensing officials and a variety of other groups, including privacy groups, getting together to discuss how this could be done well. Passage of the Real ID Act canceled that negotiating rulemaking process in favor of a top-down prescription from Washington about how states were supposed to uh, conduct their, their, their licensing and the issuance of their IDs. Uh, in brief, there are uh, nearly 100 uh, requirements in the, in the Real ID Act, and most of you have on your chair uh, a blog post I put up this morning that articulates them. And the hook that Real ID has, because the federal government cannot commandeer the states, is that, that the federal government would refuse to accept IDs from states that are not compliant with the Real ID Act. And that's been sort of at the, at the center of the, of the debate ever since, and it's something I'll talk about more toward the end. As Peter mentioned, 
Real ID passed without a hearing and without an up or down vote in the Senate. Uh, it, it shows, frankly, and there, a bill was introduced this week to amend Real ID to tweak it a little bit because some of the things weren't considered about the licensing uh, processes and ID processes in some of the U.S. territories, not, not thought through, but lots else wasn't thought through. When it passed in May of 2005, it set a three-year deadline for states to comply. That is, states were to start issuing licenses subject to federal standards within three years. It took the Department of Homeland Security almost three years to issue the regulations that would tell states what to do. It was January of 2008, just four months before the de compliance deadline, that DHS came out with the regs telling states what they should do. Naturally, for the first time of many, the DHS pushed the deadline back, uh, gave blanket extensions to everybody, and started a complicated, multiplicitous process that continues today where they told states, okay, you don't have to comply. Uh, we'll let you go a little bit longer if you declare this allegiance to the Real ID Act, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the, even a, a brief version of the story is in a, in a paper from May uh, 2014 called Real ID, a State-by-State -State Update. You can look for that online. At the time the regs were finalized, DHS itself estimated $17 billion in implementation costs. But by that time, the states had already started to look at Real ID. And in 2006, about a year after the law was passed, when they were starting to focus on what was involved, uh, a, a thing got started that I like to call the Real ID Rebellion. Uh, states across the country, uh, northeast, northwest, southern states, midwestern states, red and blue states, started bridling at what they anticipated uh, if they were to comply with Real ID. Uh, the cost and the privacy consequences to their residents was what, what, um, what caused their objections. And again, like I said, across the country, uh, more than half the states in the country passed either resolutions inviting their, their uh, uh, federal representatives to revisit Real ID or bills barring the state entirely from complying with the Real ID Act. So there are still many states that are, that are statutorily barred in their own law from complying with Real ID. Before I get back to the history, what's happened since then, I want to go into identity-based security. And actually, it's kind of an interesting thing about Real ID. The merits of a national ID are very rarely discussed. Uh, but obviously, that's the essence. And I suppose one of the reasons why the Real ID Act and the national ID idea has a lot of currency is because people assume that it provides security uh, benefits that make it somewhat worth the cost. Uh, I've written a book on identity that uh, that is kind of interesting. A, a predecessor of Peter's used to characterize this as one of the least bad policy books he'd ever read, and I take that as a very, very high compliment. But Identity Crisis, How Identification is Overused and Misunderstood was my exploration into uh, how identity systems work, and knowing that, you can determine how they fail. Um, obviously, identity is essential. It's, it's, think of it as sort of an economic and social glue. We use identification all the time uh, to recognize our loved ones, to communicate with people. It's, it's absolutely essential, and there's obviously no getting rid of identity. It works very well in common interactions in our ordinary day-to-day uh, -day society. Just to illustrate, um, and, and this may, may be why people uh, assume so readily that a national ID provides security, if I were to borrow your phone, um, you could be relatively confident of getting it back because you know my name, you know who I am, uh, you know where, where I work, uh, you could find me. You could uh, 
call my friends, you could call the police if you needed to get your phone back. Anticipating that, um, if I'm not just a nice guy, anticipating that, I'm going to go ahead and give you your phone back because it's going to be more hassle than it's worth because you'll come after me and get the phone. So knowing who I am means that I behave well with respect to you. That's the benefit of, of identification in day-to-day in -day interaction, and it works. So there's no, no denying that identity is beneficial. It's essential, in fact. But what if you're dealing with someone who we'll call a motivated attacker? It could be a criminal or a criminal syndicate. It could be a terrorist. It could be someone who lacks uh, impulse control. You don't get the same benefit from identification vis-a-vis -vis those people. Um, they may identify themselves to you directly and still do a bad thing to you, someone with impulse control, a terrorist. And indeed on 911, the terrorists identified themselves accurately. Uh, it's sort of a, a, a myth that hangs out there that they used a lot of identity fraud in order to ply their trade or make their way through the country. They identified themselves accurately. They used minor identity frauds. I think in Virginia, a few of them claimed state residency when they'd been in the state less than five days, which was fraudulent, but it's one of the most minor frauds I could possibly think of. Identifying themselves accurately, they went ahead and, and uh, committed their, their dastardly deeds. Uh, other, other malefactors will try to defeat your identity system, so a, a criminal syndicate or something like that. And it's really not that hard to do, particularly in the example of terrorism, because there's sort of two ways to avoid uh, the security of an identity system. Uh, I call them logical avoidance and physical avoidance. Logical avoidance is getting the ID that's necessary to access whatever infrastructure is controlled by ID. So it's using the ID that's required. Getting an ID, ID if, it's, if, it, if, if, if you really need to, uh, getting a fake ID. It's really not that hard, and especially if you're in a, a motivated attacker, it's not at all hard to get the documents to put together an identity. And now there are definitely efforts to strengthen the, the, the license and make it harder to do that. But just how much are you going to expend of society's resources and the time and effort of every American to make it hard to get a fake ID so that uh, some bad actor can't get a fake ID? Because in addition to logical avoidance of an ID security system, there's physical avoidance. That's literally going someplace that's not controlled by identification. So if I am trying to, I'm sorry to always be talking about terrorist dangers, but they're one of the prime motivators for this. So if I am unable to access planes for some reason, I go to a shopping mall. We saw this tragically demonstrated in Paris. Um, they went to a place, they were obviously in places that it doesn't require identification to go there. And so they're able to do damage without regard to the fact that France is a national ID country. They have a national ID. It's optional, but customarily people carry their IDs with them at all times, and they're required by law to show ID uh, when they're asked for it by, by police or other judicial authorities. So here you've got un an unfortunate example where, where um, the existence of an ID system did not provide any, any of the kind of security that we'd want and that we'd expect from a national ID. Physical avoidance, simply going places where an ID is not required. So that's the that's the the, the security question, which is the which is the most important. Uh, I think that if uh, uh, it, there are privacy costs in addition to dollar costs that that make a national ID very concerning, but if it provided good security, if it was a solid security system, uh, I'd be hard pressed to say that we sh we shouldn't have such a thing. Uh, I'm very bought into the the standard of the Fourth Amendment, which is that that uh, people's uh, privacy is protected. 
against unreasonable searches and seizures. And if it is a reasonable security measure, uh, it's something that I would, would probably be willing to embrace. So I'm not just standing here saying no to a national ID despite all. I'm saying no to a national ID because it doesn't add up in terms of, in terms of cost and benefits. Well, since the Real ID rebellion in 2006, 2007, and 2008, uh, the DHS has continually pushed back compliance deadlines. And that's an important theme for the current discussion of Real ID because the DHS and its, and its pro-national ID allies uh, are very sort of urgently nowadays uh, uh, telling states that enforcement is about to come, that any time now the Department of Homeland Security is going to start refusing people's licenses if they're from a state that isn't compliant with Real ID. Basically what that boils down to is not being able to access uh, DHS headquarters and some meetings that happen in Washington, D.C. That doesn't matter to most people in the United States. No offense, Washington, D.C. Uh, it also means access to federal facilities, and that's had some people concerned in some states like New Mexico, which has a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, uh, federal labs and that kind of thing. But the real kicker is the threat that the Transportation Security Administration might refuse the licenses of people uh, who, who are from states that aren't complying with, uh, with Real ID when they go to travel, when they go to visit grandma at Christmas time, or, uh, or whatever the case may be. My contention, and it's based on experience and my assessment of the politics, is that uh, the states are really in the driver's seat on this if they choose to be. Uh, experience is that DHS has continually kicked down deadlines. It used to declare deadlines in the Federal Register. They said, well, the deadline, we're going to change the deadline to this. And then a year later when that deadline was getting closer, they said, well, we're going to change the deadline to that. And a few years later when that deadline was getting close, they changed the deadline again. A few years ago, they dropped out of doing that in the Federal Register and said, we're going to have a phased in implementation period. And instead, they've been going around person to person and saying to state legislators, Here's, here's when your turn comes for us to come after you. And generally, these state legislators aren't paying attention to Jim Harper at the Cato Institute or haven't been able to find my stuff online. Um, and they believe that that's the case. So they think that they've got to fall in line. But time and again, particularly in the, in the early years, uh, states that had barred themselves from complying with Real ID um, uh, stared down the, the Homeland Security Secretary. And there are examples, uh, South Carolina and Montana, uh, a red state and a blue state, co co uh, coincidentally, in terms of governorship, um, those states had barred themselves from complying. And at one point, the DHS said, you can get an extension if you request one by a certain date. These governors declined to even request an extension because their states had barred themselves from complying. They didn't, couldn't, in good faith, say, I'd like an extension for a, for a program that, that we have no plans to comply with. Uh, in the end, after, after vigorous, uh, vigorous stare down and exchange of letters and exchange of, of uh, comments in the press, uh, these state governors sent letters to the, to the uh, DHS Secretary Michael Chertoff stating what their states do in terms of ident identification security already. And Secretary Chertoff accepted that letter as a request for a deadline extension and granted it. Very fascinating. The, the governor of uh, Governor Montana said, um, I sent them a horse, and they, they treated it like a zebra, and that's a fine thing to do. The reason why states are in the catbird seat here is because of, I think, how the politics play out. And I think the folks at DHS are pretty good at reading, uh, reading the, the practical politics of refusing people their right to travel when they go to the airport.
on the day that, it, that, that, that TSA begins to implement, should it ever come, and I don't think it will, it would not be state legislators that people get angry at. It would not be governors that people uh, uh, write letters about. It would not be their uh, Department of Motor Vehicles that shows up in the newspaper reports about what happened when a person couldn't get home, when a person couldn't get to visit their relative. It would be the TSA. And it would be Congress. And it would be the Department of Homeland Security that you hear about, blocking people from traveling because they don't come from a, a real ID state or they don't carry a national ID card themselves. So I think the, the, the game here is for people like me to educate state leaders and people like you to educate uh, your bosses here in Congress about what this, what this policy is, how it works, and really how it fails. Um, right now, uh, the, the push is on for, for real ID compliance. I talked about how the Department of Homeland Security is, is speaking to states. Uh, state motor vehicle bureaucrats themselves have worked as sort of subtle allies of the DHS on this. Uh, they and the American Association of Motor Vehicle Administrators get together and they, you know, they, they go to the legislators and they say, uh, I think most of them may believe that this is true, and some of them may not, that you know, we've really got to do this. We have to obey federal policy on this matter. And the state legislator, not knowing any better, dutifully introduces bills and then they start to hear from their constituents, then they start to hear from people like me, they start to hear from the ACLU. And, uh, and many states uh, turn around and stop, stop compliance. And we may just continue, continue talking about this uh, with states like that. But the better approach, I think, would be for uh, some change to the policy. Uh, I've talked a lot over, over many years about the fact that the Congress, the U.S. Congress, funds this dynamic by allowing money in the DHS appropriations bill to go into a grant fund that ultimately keeps, keeps the money flow going. So that, so that the state motor vehicle bureaus, they see money coming, they can convince their legislators, hey, we get federal money if we do this. Uh, AMVA, the group that I talked about, they see this as an opportunity to make money, so they as a special interest group are gonna keep working it. And that's because the money spigot is open. And I've argued that, that Congress should close the money spigot and stop funding a national ID system. It's one of the great policy options where you could save taxpayer dollars and make the country better off at, at the same time. Should a national ID uh, be implemented, I think that uh, you'd find quickly that not only would it harm the privacy of law-abiding citizens much more than it would provide any security, uh, it would also be subject to mission creep. Let me go into each of those separately and just talk a little bit about the, the privacy consequences. When we use a variety of different means to identify ourselves, when there's no one standard for identification, um, that means it's a little bit more difficult to figure out who people are. It's, uh, it provides you privacy protection. If you've identified yourself to one person or one company or one group using one set of identification standards, the data that they accumulate about you isn't interoperable with another group's data. So I mean, for, for, for competitive reasons and probably data structure reasons, Google and Facebook could not quickly combine data that they have about all the people in the country because they're not using the same standards and happily they don't want to, to, to combine this data. But let's say that every organization and every company used the same set of data standards to identify people. So they use the same, I won't get into the technology, the, the sort of, you know, the data fields and all these things that, that are involved in uh, cards like those required under the Real ID Act. But if everyone's using the same data standards, the data about you becomes interoperable. 
So the, the card swipe that you did at the entrance to the Rayburn building accumulates the same kind of data as the card swipe that you do when you go into the office building where your doctor's office is located. And as these data sets come together, they paint a more and more complete picture about your life. We're already moving very quickly, as you know, into a sort of surveillance society where lots of organizations of all types have lots of data about us. If we unify it all around one identity system, that hurdles us far faster and far further into a surveillance society. So, I mean, I think there are many benefits to technology, many benefits to being identified. But the last thing we need is a federal policy that drives us all into the same identity system so that we can be identified uh, uniquely by a variety of organizations that ultimately can share information about us and build these kinds of dossiers that are really, really allow intrusion into our lives. So that privacy dimension is important. And again, it's the privacy of law-abiding people. In a national ID system, the good people are the ones carrying the national ID. And the people who are trying to thwart may or may not be carrying a national ID, may or may not be carrying an ID that's accurate. Mission creep is very important to keep in mind. When you have ID systems that are diverse, there's not that much benefit to, to collecting identity for the, for the organization, for the corporation, or for the, for the government agency. Uh, if, you, if you have a system in place that makes it easy, it's going to happen more often. When you go to use a credit card, let's also get an ID swipe, just add a little bit of security. When you go to pick up uh, your, your prescription at the pharmacy, when you go to the doctor's office, uh, say you want to buy a gun or ammunition, the list goes on and on. Um, financial services, housing, these are all things that are, have actually been proposed for, for a national ID system, including controlling access to voting. One of the dimensions that, that's important to consider about this is fit the use of facial recognition. The Real ID Act doesn't require facial recognition. The Real ID regulations lean in favor of facial recognition. And a number of states are using facial recognition on their driver license photos right now, thanks to the impetus given to, to that by the Real ID Act. If it's, if it's implemented nationwide, I think you should have little doubt that facial recognition will be broadly used by DMVs. And as the technology in, in evolves, it will be more often used by more and more entities. That, that surveillance society that we don't want to, to plunge ourselves into too quickly. So given, given the lacking benefits and giving these kinds of costs, in addition to the dollar cost of implementing, I think Real ID ends up being a, 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 a loser. A uh, well-intended but ultimately useless security program. Here's where the, here's where the debate goes. Uh, the DHS has set out a, a number of uh, a number of deadlines for a variety of states, and there's a very interesting document that it has out called, uh, on the web called Real ID Enforcement in Brief. And on this, uh, on this web page, they list just two non-compliant states and territories, American Samoa and Minnesota. The suggestion here is that all the rest of the states are compliant. But if you look at the list and you look at the asterisk and the double asterisk, and the pound sign next to more than half of the, the states that are in the compliant or extension states and territories, they're not compliant either. DHS is sort of trying to paint a picture of widespread compliance so that states that are uh, hanging back feel like they're going to be left out in the cold. The accurate picture is that more than half of the states in the United States are not compliant according to DHS's own webpage dealing with real ID enforcement. 
And they're also mischaracterizing what compliance is on their website. When they say that states are compliant, they're referring to what's known as a material compliance checklist. This is a thing they came up with in 2007. Instead of real full enforcement with all the terms of the law, including the back-end information sharing, they said we're going to put together a material compliance checklist. And the states that promise to do this stuff, we're going to give extensions to. And it's, I don't know, by number, it's less than half of the requirements uh, that, are, that, are, that exist in the Real ID law. So they're painting a picture of compliance. They're painting a picture of success. And I think that's to try to convince states that are hanging back that they need to get on board. The fact is that today most states are not complying with Real ID. And I don't think it'll be, uh, and I think it'll be a very long time before all states do. Uh, one reason for that, uh, and, and it's a very good one, is that the back-end information sharing that states are required to do, the system for that hasn't been built yet. I don't th think the system for that should be built. But it's important to know that one of RealID's requirements is that every Department of Motor Vehicles that's compliant shares information with every other Department of Motor Vehicles across the country. So think about that in terms of data security. Okay? I'm, running a, I'm running a motor vehicle bureau in my state and I have to respond to any other state that pings me for data about Jim Harper. Jim Harper's data could go anywhere in the country and would be subject to the security success or failure of any other state. Uh, we see again and again in the private sector and the public sector uh, where data is being breached. And this is a recipe for that kind of breach. Uh, you are opening up your data, if you're a state uh, administrator, to every other state's uh, security weaknesses. I think that some states in the very near future are going to move toward a two-tier licensing system. The Real, Real ID Act allows for states to issue what they call non-federal licenses. They can be a compliant state if they issue federally compliant licenses and also non-compliant licenses. They don't have to require that, uh, you know, for example, uh, proof of legal presence in the country. They can, offer, they can allow people a non-federal license if they, if they don't want to uh, show their green card or other proof of citizenship, uh, proof of naturalization, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that sounds like a good idea, and I think it's going to be an appealing compromise in a lot of states that they'll have their official real ID, it'll have a gold star on it, and then they'll have the non-federal license, which doesn't have the gold star and says not for federal purposes, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I think what's important for those states to understand, and it's important for all of you to understand, is that to comply with Real ID, you've got to share back-end data about everybody. So I'm worried that these states are going to tell people you're not in the national ID system, you're, you're not doing the federal ID, and then because of the terms of the Real ID Act, they're going to have to be sharing information uh, about these very people who tried to opt out of that system. So that's something I'm going to be talking about a lot. And I think in the early part of next year, you'll see a lot of states, because of this pressure put on by DHS, moving to implement Real ID. A lot of hard questions. Uh, as they do implement Real ID, you can probably expect uh, to get a lot of hard questions here. Because in states that have moved early, um, Alabama was one, uh, a lot of people got really upset. Because uh, you have people, older people, uh, people without a lot of money, people who live far away from a Department of Motor Vehicles. Uh, who go, go, to the, go down to that office and they find out that they don't have the documents they need. Maybe their documentation was lost in a fire or a flood. They've been licensed their whole life and they are, they're getting called in again uh, to prove that, that, that they're Americans and they're allowed to, to have a driver's license in the United States. So if the states go ahead and get on board with this, you're going to hear about it. 
Um, if the DHS forgets about the politics and try to enforce this at the airport, you're going to hear about it too because, because that would cause a real conflagration if the, if the TSA starts to turn people away at the airports. Again, I think they probably won't. But uh, let me conclude with that. That's a lot of information. Uh, there will be a quiz at the end, and then you'll get a little um, certification. It's your real ID expert, and you can carry that around with you in your pocket and show it at TSA, and you'll be handcuffed and carted away forever. <laughs> um, so um, questions or, uh, or comments? Thank you.